This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Father, we thank you for the book of Psalms that's filled with emotions, that's filled with reality, that's filled with experience. So much there for us, Father. We pray today as we open up Psalm 73 that, God, you will open our hearts, that you open our minds and you strengthen our hands, that our minds can understand, our hearts can respond to you, our hands can go forth to love you more. In Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you have your bulletin, um, if you open it up, there is an outline there as well as the passage. And it will be great if you have the passage open for today because we will look back to it often. Now, have you been in a situation where the reality does not match with the ideal? Someone bought a beautiful wedding dress online and it turns out to be a clown's dress when it arrives home. Someone buys some health supplement that promises a lot, but after finishing the whole thing, it did nothing. And of course, those who have bought into the Hollywood romance are disappointed with the mundane and the pain that comes with real relationships. Also, we have heard, I'm sure, of religious groups, even amongst us, promising that their God will heal all their sicknesses only to face the harsh reality of death or prosperity, but ends up with unemployment, love, but ends up being abandoned. What happens when we put our trust in an ideal only to be met by the harsh and even opposing reality of what comes with it. What happens in such times? What happens when, when we are faced with all this? It's a time of crisis, a crisis of trust, where you have trusted something and someone, and it turns the opposite way. If, if this ideal and this reality gap is only an online $5 purchase, you'll probably just be disappointed, disgruntled a bit, and not purchase again, hopefully, some people do. If it is a $500 wedding dress, it, it leaves a deeper hurt in your pocket and causes you some emotional stress or timeline stresses. If it is ideal and reality gap between in a relationship, it causes a much deeper and longer lasting pain. But what if the ideal and reality gap falls on God's promise? What if your understanding of the ideal life as a Christian is matched by a harsh and even opposing reality in your own lives? What happens? I think at this point you come to a spiritual crisis, a crisis of your faith. And this is the song of Psalms 73. A song by Asaph about the internal battle of one who trusts in God and yet experiences a mismatch between the ideal and the reality. As we step into Psalm 73 together, hearing the anguish of the psalmist, perhaps we will find that we too, at various points of our lives, 
will be confronted with this same crisis. As we put our trust for this life and next to God, we are challenged with gaps between the ideal and your experience. So I want to invite us to step into Psalm 73 with Asaph. In fact, if you open the passage with me, that will be excellent. We'll be looking at the first part, the crisis of faith in verse 1 to 3. Now Psalm 73 is a psalm of Asaph, and he said this, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Asaph begins by stating what he understood about God and God's dealing with those who are right with him. Listen to the emphasis of surely, surely God is good, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, to those who are after him. Isn't this a right understanding of God and his dealing with his people? Israel and those who are pure in heart, those who seek after God, should receive blessing. Isn't that how the whole book of Psalms begins? Psalms 1. Let me read to us Psalms 1. It declares this. Blessed is the one who does not walk in the step of the wicked. And he described this blessed man. That man is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do, prospers. So here Psalm 73, Asaph declares, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But look to verse 2, and he quickly betrays what is really going through his mind as he looks at his surrounding. Verse 2 says, But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I, have near, I had nearly lost my foothold. The big question in this psalm at its very start is this, how is the goodness of God experienced by His people? I'm His people. I'm not experiencing any goodness. That's, that's what Asaph is saying. The underlying principle that the psalmist has is the cause and effect um, that has been understood in the Old Testament. If I trust in God, a good God, then I will be blessed because He is good. And because of this, it's often hijacked by the, by atheists or even by those who are skeptics alike, they'll say this. But if God exists, why? And if God is good, if God exists and if God is good, why is there suffering? And their point actually is this. Because there is suffering, either God doesn't exist or God is not good. Because of what Asaph has believed, because this is what Israel has hold on to, this has been used as a mockery of God. So if the psalmist's understanding of ideal is right, look at verse 1. That is, those who live in love and fear of God will be blessed, like Psalm 1, with his emphasis of Shirley. Then verse 2 and 3 brings out his outcry, his crisis of faith, as he experiences contradiction to so-called the truth he understands. And this is his crisis. Look at verse 2 and 3. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envy the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. The reality experienced by the psalmist is this. He who lives in love and fear of God are not getting the blessings. Rather, the arrogant, the wicked, those who mocks God, they are rising up around him and being blessed. So surely God is good, but I don't see and feel this goodness. If a stable feet means that I'm secure in my faith, then I tell you my feet is slipping. 
for my faith is struggling. Now, Psalm 73 is a slightly different psalm from some other psalms that you read. It's not a crisis for help because of danger. It's a cry of a crisis of faith within. And the reason he's near this spiritual catastrophe is because his eyes looked and his eyes tell him that suffering does not fall on the wicked. Rather, blessing comes to those who hate and mocks God. Listen to the challenges his eyes present to him and confronts his faith from verse 4 to verse 12. Follow with me to verse 4. What does it say? Look at verse 4. Verse 4 says, look at it, God's people have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. Is that what they're saying? It's not, isn't it? Verse 4 says this. That's what he expects, that God's people will not struggle. But verse 4 says, the wicked have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. So blessed are the wicked that they do not even care about the common human burdens. What are the common human burdens? Common human burdens, we have financial worries, we have worries about lack of food, relationship issues, marital challenges, perhaps oppression by bosses at work, or treading on thin line of office politics or about racial, political um, harmony or plagued by common physical sickness. But these are all absent as ASAP look at the wicked. And from verse 3 to 12, there are three major contradictions that the eyes of ASAP is speaking to him. The first is this, in verse 3, the wicked are prosperous and healthy. Their, their physical health is so obvious, unaffected by common ills. They may even live long life and long and happy life. They're the one who lives the YOLO life. You only live once. They are, their wealth allows them and ensures that no desires or fantasy are being refrained. They do what they want and they are able to do what they want and their health, they're so healthy, they are allowed to live the YOLO life. They could afford medical premiums, high premiums of, uh, for medical and hospitalization insurance. But you know what? They don't use them because they don't need them. And the second thing, as he looks on from verse 4 to 9, the wicked are, they are self-sufficient. They're arrogant about their status and they use their power for violence. Just as their prosperity seems limitless, so limitless are their evil schemes and words. They do evil, they speak evil, they make boastful claims over heaven and earth. If the opportunities, they'll claim themselves to be gods. They speak boastfully how great they are and their ability to make the earth great again. Their tongues claim possessions of the earth. And then, as his eyes look on, this is where life throws an anchor instead of a float at the struggling faith of Asap. Look at verse 10. Therefore, the wicked receive retribution. Is that what verse 10 is saying? It isn't. Verse 10 says, the wicked are not drawing anger, they are not drawing retribution, instead they are gaining influence, and followers are making blasphemous claims. In fact, the more confidently arrogant they are, 
the more followers they attract. Look at verse 10 to 12. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? That is what the wicked are like. Always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. If you look at verse 10, verse 10 could well be read this way. Therefore, the people turned to them and greedily lapped the water of their words. As they speak boastfully, the people rush in and lap in on what they are saying. So we get the picture here. As you look at verse 12, the wicked are free of care. They are just getting richer and richer, becoming more and more boastful, gaining more and more influence. But now, we may just want to pause and say, wait, Andrew, what is the context of Psalms 73? Tell us a bit about the context. Well, maybe you didn't ask, but I'm asking me so I can tell you the context. Um, actually, we are not totally certain what is the context of this. Perhaps Asaph was writing on behalf of King David, or perhaps he was writing about his own life and experience as he looked at the corruption under the sun. There are two, th- two places that mention about this person, Asaph, if it's the same one. Chronicles, First Chronicles 6, 37, it mentioned King David himself has commissioned a person by the name Asaph to minister before the ark of the Lord. And after David dies, Second Chronicles 5, 12, again detailed, this Asaph, he was a musician who was involved in the dedication of Solomon's temple. So he was with the ark of God, when he was in a tent, he was in the ark of God, with serving in the ark of God when he was a temple. So Asaph, he was an officer who served both the kings and in the ministry of serving the cent- at the sanctuary of God. And his long service as he looked at the lives of the righteous and he looked at the lives of the wicked, he sees evil under the sun, that the wicked sin to prosper. This month is September. September 11 is just seven days ago. Those who are slightly older will have a clear remembrance of that incident in New York where the World Trade Center crashed at 911. I thought it was just a few years ago, but actually I realized it's been 16 years since it happened. It looked like yesterday because of its significance, but guess what? The war declared is still ongoing. Terrorists and terrorism is still continuing even today. Back then at 911, a big question came up on many people's um, response was this. Where is God on 911? Where is God when evil gets an upper hand? As we read or listen to news nearby, politics, culture, prayer, letters, mission, websites, it is easy to spot dictators who will claim power of deity, who gets to dictate life and death of others with their power. We read how the lives of some rich but questionable business magnates have great followers. Their, their leadership books, their um, books on corporate um, business and so on are being lapped up as number one selling books. Or magazines that reviews the juiciest paparazzi photos get sold the most. 
But meanwhile, we also hear more and more of Christians being persecuted by their faith. If you ever subscribe to prayer letters, which I do, and I receive them every other day of another Christian being persecuted in Asia or in the Middle East, they just come in. It's either technology has gone up, or is that Christians continue to face the reality of persecution, even going up um, and even rising up in this time. The idea that God is good to His people and the reality of saying, actually, if you live like the world, is vastly different. Those who are following God, there are some, but often you see that they do not see the ideal. But those who ignore God seems to prosper. Now, perhaps in our own lives, as we think about yourselves and myself, our life experience, we perhaps also see the same contradiction in the ideal and in the reality. Those who are faithful to God, those who dress modestly, those who do not use flirtatious language, sometimes they end up not having a partner. Whereas those who kind of care less of all this live the life of James Bond or has the Prince Charming that she was looking for. Or those who speak truth and live principled lives get branded as whistleblowers and those who are principally flexible gets promotion. Or perhaps those who work hard while the boss is away are being ostracized by the rest. But those who are just charismatic gets all the rewards and acknowledgement. Or perhaps you are someone who fights hard against sin in your life, against self-centeredness, who are always bearing the heavy burden of your sinfulness. And if you look out the window, you see those who care less about morality, about God's principles, as what um, Ben was sharing just now, seems to have all the smiles. If you have social media following them, they're always smiling at the best place. They're having the best person next to them. They're enjoying the best food. All the social medias uh, seems to show that they are happy. And at that point, you may even wonder, as you look at your life, if I'm not a Christian, perhaps life would have been easier. If I just follow my worldly passion and desire, perhaps I would have experienced more. Well, that is exactly how the psalmist feels as he questions his faith in verse 13. Remember how he started in verse 1? Surely God is good. Look at verse 13 as he reveals what he's really feeling inside. Look at verse 13. Verse 13 says, And surely in vain, have I kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence? His spiritual crisis came from what his eyes tell him. He considers how his wasted life of being faithful to God. He goes on to say, In fact, each waking morning is a punishment for me. When I sleep, I dream about the idea. When I wake up, I see the reality. So God's goodness is verse 1 is confronted by his spiritual crisis in verse 13. Perhaps, Perhaps he should give up. Follow the world, enter the foes of the world. As someone would have put it, to walk in the step of the wicked, to stand in the way of the sinners, to sit in the company of mockers, to join the mockery of verse 11. How would God know? Does the Most High know anything? 
The psalmist's anger almost flowed out of him in words to rebel against God, to be just like the wicked. That would have been tempting and he would almost have done it. But then he was being pulled and pulled back from lashing out in verse 15. As you look at verse 15, if he, Asaph, a temple official, a representative of God before others, has spoken before God's people in this manner, he will have betrayed them. In fact, by the time we reach verse 16, it is almost at breaking point of the psalmist. The more he tried to understand, the more he became troubled. Dear friends, how will you and I respond and think through this spiritual crisis? We have journeyed with Asaph for quite a bit now to feel the anguish he has when our eyes if we are like Asaph, points us to the obvious blessing of those who do reject God. And meanwhile, the trouble that falls upon you as you try to live faithful to God. Do you have such struggles? Perhaps yes, perhaps no, but this will be a real struggle for people who are really working hard and seeking to please God, those who are serious to obey God and trusting God in His promise. Because we trust that His promise will not be void. Because people like Asaph, when they struggle, they may face losses, perhaps the loss of the luxury of spending all his time and money on himself. Perhaps the lazy weekend, perhaps the promotion, perhaps the relationships. That as he became serious with God, that some of these things and some of these losses become a reality of his life. So that is how Asaph feels. But then, as we almost reach the depth and the bottom of his life, the axis suddenly changed 180 degrees. Suddenly his axis changed in verse 17. So I want to invite us now to look at verse 16 and 17 because everything is about to change. Verse 16, when I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply, till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. The breakthrough for the psalmist happens when he reached the pits of the hole. And he turns, instead of living and running to the world, he now turns in desperation to God at his century, entering into God's presence, Asap was suddenly given a revelation, a refreshed revelation to understand from God's perspective and actually to understand the ending of all the wicked. In his great trouble, instead of going to the wicked, he turns to God and he sees what is ahead as God reveals the revelation for faith. So as you look at verse 18 to 20 onwards, in the depth of his crisis, God revealed to him, and then the psalmist suddenly cried out to God. Verse 18, Surely you place them on sleepy ground, you cast them down to ruin. How suddenly they are destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream that when one wakes, when you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasy. 
Now I just want to pause here for a moment and ask us to take a look at something really important up to this point if you have been observant enough. Open up Psalm 73, look at it. Look at who the psalmist has been speaking to from verse 1 to 14. Just take a moment, look at verse 1 to 14, scan it down. Who is the psalmist speaking to? If you observe this 14 verses, the psalmist has been speaking to himself. His eyes were looking at the world and he was speaking to himself over the envy that he has. The axis start to turn only from verse 15 to 17 when he stops looking at the world with envy and looks to God. That God's revelation comes to him. Notice that after the turning point of verse 17, as God provides a revelation of what really is the reality, his, conver- his conversation redirects from talking to himself, self-talk, to God-talk. He begins to speak to God because the psalmist now sees what he previously could not when he was envying the wicked. He now sees that the wicked's life wasn't on an upward trend. It is on a downward trend set for falling. In fact, the wicked have already fallen as they mock God. They're the ones on slippery ground about to be cast into ruins and their destructions will be sudden and terror will completely overwhelm them. Like the thousand over on April 14, 1912. I'm not sure if this name rings anything to you. While there's a group of people who are eating and drinking and enjoying the fruits of their labor, they're sailing through the North Atlantic Ocean, boasting and boarding on that unsinkable Titanic. They had no idea that their heart will not go on to the next day. <laughs> While they are drinking and merrymaking, they did not know that thousand over will be seeing their Creator that very night. All of them, all of us, will have a sudden moment where we will see our Creator. For the wicked they will be like a dream that quickly disappears at the dawn of the morning when the Lord rises up. All their boasting of their powers over heavens and earth will become a pathetic fantasy in the eternal reality of the Lord. Dear friends, I wonder how often we get plunged into troubled hearts, grief, sorrows, bitterness, senselessness as we look with our eyes and we let our eyes speak to us instead of speaking to God and asking Him to speak to us. How often our so-called reality has a big gap with the ideal because the reality our eyes can see are the mere few short years instead of the eternity that God has prepared for His people. Now some of us may ask, but how do we enter the century of God today? How do you and I come into God's presence? Now to get to that, we need to understand what 
does it mean to be in the sanctuary of God? Remember we spoke about Asaph. To him, the sanctuary of God would have been the tent that David had built to put the ark of God. Or the temple that Solomon has constructed to house the ark of God. Is this The sanctuary of God is the place where man meets God. How about you and I? What is the sanctuary of God now? Well, to put, to put the record straight, the sanctuary of God is not the church building. Rather, the real sanctuary of God, the temple of God, is His Son Jesus. Because the New Testament, in John 2.19, Jesus said of this, about His body, destroy this temple, talking about His own body, and I will raise it again in three days. Because Jesus is the ultimate temple of God. In fact, Jesus, His name is called Emmanuel, that He is the one where God is with us. What Asaph had was the Old Testament sanctuary of God, but what we have is the eternal presence and the eternal way for us to be in God's presence. Where do we go? Who do we turn to when we grieve and we struggle, when we feel senseless, when we feel depressed, when we look at the world and say, perhaps I should just stop this race? Who do we go to? And Asaph would tell you, come to the sanctuary of God. Come to Jesus, the Son of God. Look at His death, look at His burial, look at His resurrection. Because it was His death that has replaced our death. It was His death that has taken up the punishment that we have. It is His resurrection that promises that we will have our resurrection. Dear friends, if Jesus had remained dead, I think we'll be right to sing with Asaph from verse 1 to verse 16. The difference is Jesus did not stay dead. And because of that, Asaph, and we can agree with him that he is wrong. From verse 1 to 16, that he had been wrong because he had sinned reality far too short. Because those who have rebelled and loved, verse 11, does the Most High knows anything, they will be swept with terror because the Most High knows everything. And the day of His death, the way of our death, is the day when the Most High will reveal what He knows. The day that we have nowhere to hide. But those who are true Israel, those who trust in Jesus, in God, will receive in Jesus God's goodness. The same resurrection as Jesus had. There will be no second death for those who are in God's sanctuary and for those who are in Christ. Dear friends, brothers, sisters, may we always look back and come back to the sanctuary of God in times of our trials, in times where you face challenge, when times you feel persecuted or difficult, when our eyes seems to tell us to be afraid or tell us to be envious, turn to the sanctuary of God, to Christ, because that's where we will see the goodness of God because our eyesight will stretch, not to this time, but into reality and what God has in store for us. So if you are someone who is kind of investigating Christianity, I, I plead and invite us to 
come to Jesus, to learn about Jesus, to think about Jesus, and to know what He has to offer as we come to His presence. And for us who are Christians, then let us come to Jesus and to remember that He is the sentry so that our eyes can be opened because it tends to wander. From speaking to himself and then to God, Asaph now speaks to God about himself. And this is Asaph's prayer to God now and his declaration before God's people. So look at his response of faith from verses 21 onwards. Now Asaph is awake and he speaks to God. When my heart was grieved, my spirit was embittered. I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Now that Asaph's eyes has opened from speaking of his self-pity in verse 13, he considers, who, had, who for a moment had considered living for God useless, now he looks and says, you know what God, I was a brute beast before you when I was thinking of that. The stupidity, the stupidity that I have that speaks because I do not know you enough and could not see you enough. So he called himself senseless and a brute beast. But you know what? As Asaph is not the, the first person who says this. There's this big chunk of book in the Old Testament called Job. It's that man who had been through, who has lived his life for God and he was in the pits of his life without knowing why and he questions whether it is right or is worth all of this. And then when God reveals himself to Job, this is the words of Job as he concluded his big, massive book. Job 42 says this, Then Job replied to the Lord, Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. My my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. So like Job, Asaph now has a new emotion that arises from within in the midst of his anguish when he realizes the reality from God's perspective. And so verse 23, 24, he now acknowledges what he had failed to see. And I pray that we will see this because it applies to us who believe in God. 23, 24, Asaph says this, that he was always with God because... God was holding Asaph's right hand. God has been guiding Asaph with his counsel to live for him. And when the time comes, Asaph realized God will bring him into his glory. It is the same truth for us as it is for Asaph. We may feel abandoned at times as a Christian if we look to the world, but we will find assurance when we come and look at Jesus and his sanctuary. Because God is always with us and holding on to our right hand. He's always there counseling and guiding us and bringing us finally into His glory. And I just want to point out something interesting to you. Come to think of it, if you look at verse 2, what did the psalmist say in verse 2? He says, My foot had almost slipped. Almost slipped. Almost but he did not slip. Because while he was making all that envy and crying, God was holding on to his right hand until he turns at the sanctuary of God and sees 
that he will not fall, but he will enter into God's glory. And the same in the Christian journey, there will be times that we will struggle, we will feel and cry like like him, like Asaph. So God, my feet has almost slipped when I lost, when you lose a relationship, when you lose something precious because you want to be a Christian. And you question God, I'm going to slip. And God says, and I'm holding on to you. You know, some religions tells us the solution to suffering is to be void of emotions. Take away the emotion or the desire and you will not suffer. But not Christianity. Christianity tells us this. The solution to suffering is to look at the ultimate desire. Not the high desire here, but the ultimate desire. And that will help you in the days of your suffering here. To look beyond the eyes of envy. That's what Asaph now does. He looks to heaven and with the same eyes he looks on earth. And he now sees that God is his most valued possession. And with that he sings verse 26. Which my uncle sang when he was dying of cancer at age 33 many years ago. Asaph sang, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. At the peak of his career in the United States, my uncle was um, just lifting off in his career, just married the woman of his life. He has been as faithful as he could be to God. And um, I remember when he was in the church where there's no one else in his age, but he stayed there because there are young people there who needs to be mentored. And at his peak of his life, at age 33, he was confronted with the end stage of pancreatic cancer. But verse 26 of Psalm 73 was his song. As he lost his flesh quickly, the only thing that's evidence of cancer was his bulging and bloating stomach. I remember when I was with him, he was sitting on a chair, I was sitting on, on the floor or something, and we sang this song in Mandarin, and a verse of verse 26 comes in, and he sang this, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. These are the words of one who trusts in the Lord, whose eyes have stretched past the temporal that the wicked mocks into eternity and find his portion or her portion in the Lord. As I kind of round up Psalms 23, which you have journeyed together with me and Asaph, I just want to finally take a minute to consider our own lives. For us Christians, as we seek to live for God, even when confronted by a so-called gap between the ideal and the reality, be it as a Christian who is being persecuted, who is suffering, who is disadvantaged, who are making conscious losses, or who are being scoffed at by others, let us not take the steps that lead into envy, nor be tempted to sink into the foes of the world who promise you part of their spoils. 
But let us enter the sanctuary of God, enter the presence of God to come before Christ, to look to His death, to His resurrection, and to our resurrection with Him. In the book of Philippians chapter 3, there's this very precious verses from 10 to 11. The Apostle Paul, after he has explained how he has given up all his glory as a Pharisee, he has considered all of those as rubbish. He said this, he said this of his life, as he redirects his desires and comes to the greatest desire. He says this, his desire is to participate in Christ's suffering. To become like Christ in his death. And at the appointed time, he will experience the resurrection of Christ, the resurrection of the dead, his own resurrection. It's the man who has given up everything and smiled at his death. Because that is the goodness prepared for those who trust in the Lord in life and in death. So Asa's physical scenario has not changed, but everything else about Asaph has changed. And so we conclude verses 27-28. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge, I will tell of all your deeds. So may Psalm 73 be Asaph's song, and may be yours and my song. Let us pray. Surely, O God, you are good. You are good to those who trust in you. Father, even Asaph who seeks to live for you, meet days where your promise of the ideal life becomes obscure. Even Asaph, he wavers at the sight of the wicked. So how easily too that we can be shaken, we can be tempted to live like the world, to give up our Christian faithfulness, to taste the prosperity of the wicked, to enjoy the comfort, the relationship, the pleasures of the world with the wicked. But Father, we cry to you to open our eyes, that we will look to Jesus and to know that you are with us, holding our right hand, giving us counsel, and at the appointed time, bringing us into glory. So open our spiritual eyes and extend the timeline we are drawn to see from this mere few decades now into eternity. And help us to come to Jesus every day that we can see reality from your perspective. In Jesus' name and for His glory we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at busypc.sg.